Amen and amen. Thank you for leading us in praising our King. What a great selection of songs in particular for this service. Grace to you and peace, faith family. We started this series uh, having arrived in Jerusalem, if you remember, with the Apostle Paul. If you remember, we returned to Jerusalem. Paul became aware of the impending potential danger that awaited him in Jerusalem. And within days of Paul's arrival, some men from what we presume to be Ephesus has Paul accosted by a mob which sets about a chain reaction of events that has found Paul in prison of the Roman commander in Jerusalem for a second time. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. The first arrest that Paul was arrested, he was examined for his insurrection And the second arrest that came was to protect Paul from the Sanhedrin. It's just a matter of different types of reasons and purposes. And we ended last week with a very important vision from Jesus that gave Paul some instructions for how he was to handle the situation. And he was told that he was to take courage because Paul is going to witness for the cause of Christ eventually in Rome. That is where we're going to pick up. You will turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, and we will pick up where we left off. Pick up where we left off. Acts chapter 23, verse 12. So I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know where you have been in your day-to-day circumstances. But most of us did not spend any time in prison. I don't think we did last week, may have, if you did. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, but in when Paul's case, he was given this, and we're reminded, we were reminded that when we left last week, that when we're going through situations in which we might not have any indication of what it is to do, that we are to take courage, and that we are to continue to do the work of witnessing for His cause. That that is what God has called us to do in the midst, in the midst of our our difficulty. And I don't know what you find yourself in this week, but I wonder if any of you, like myself, has often questioned the providence of God in it all. As if you you've been you you have diagnoses, you have tragedies, you have situations and circumstances, and you wonder, God, what are you up to? Where are you going? What's your plan? And not and for many of us, I have to be clear that many of us have not received a vision from God in the past week that said, Hey, don't worry about it, you're headed to Rome. And my expectation is for you to go there. And for that, that leaves some of us with ambiguity. Ambiguity about what God is doing. I mean, the news in the last couple of hours has just demonstrated for us that at any given time, the world and all of its chaos can erupt. And we can go from what seems to be uh, uh, an average day to declarations of war. And here we are in our own lives, in our own situations, in our own circumstances, and we are asking God, where are you in the providence? How is God, uh, how is God going to get us from where we are to where we need to be? And I wonder if that's what Paul was considering. God, how are you going to get me from being imprisoned in Jerusalem all the way to Rome? For some of you, God, how are you going to get me from where I am to my ultimate destination of heaven? Are you going to be real? Are you going to be there? Are you going to be true? Are you going to be faithful in the midst of it all? And God, what means are you going to use? What means are you going to use in the everyday stuff of life? 
you know, I think some of the things that we've done with the church and in the church is we have tried to make the miraculous normal. And we have tried to make narrative normative. What I mean by that is we read through the study of Acts and we see these miracles and because it's the narrative of the way God did, uh, did things, then, then, then therefore, ipso facto, it becomes the normal way God does things. Well, I can tell you in the narrative of my life that oftentimes God has done things in my life narratively that he probably hasn't done in your life or everybody's life normatively. So we wouldn't want to take that which is narrative and make it normative. We, what we would want to do is to learn from these stories in an effort to see things. So before we get to the point of making narrative normative, I want us to talk a little bit about this idea of the miraculous. And it's going to be a very, very simple statement that I want you to believe and I want you to understand. That if miracles ever became normal, they would cease to be miracles and they would be normal. <laughs> That's all I want you to know. And what we need to understand is, how does God normally work in the everyday stuff of life? Is it through this intertwining, intervening into human history through the miracle? Or is it through the normal providence of God's means and grace for him to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven by which he works through the normal everyday stuff of life so that he works his providence out in that? So that's going to be our question. That's going to be something that we're going to wrestle with. We're going to wrestle with in this series and in this sermon in particular. So I hope you were there. Uh, I want, uh, this is now set before us as we're going to pick up in the story. And what I'm going to tell you is, as we begin to prepare now, um, I am going to warn you that we're going to begin to travel from this point forward. So you need to pack your bags, right? If, you're, if we were literally traveling with Paul, I would tell you, you probably need to have your to-go bag ready. Um, if for those of you who have been through pregnancy, you know that bag that you have uh, right before your water breaks and you're going to have it to go to the hospital, you're going to want to need that. For those of you who have never been pregnant and you're waking, waiting for the apocalypse like, like I am and you have the to-go bag in the back, you're going to want to go ahead and get that in the truck because, hey, I think we're about to leave. I think we're about to leave, okay? So get your bags ready because we're about to move to Caesarea. We've been in Jerusalem for a while and we're about to move. So as we pick up Acts chapter 23, verse 12, and we will continue, <coughs> excuse me, we will read the rest of the chapter together. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and, and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation and we for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. 
So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. There were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charges for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious God and King, we know that you're the Lord of hosts. We know that you work in the means of normal everyday circumstances. And God, even as we prepared this sermon for today, many weeks ago, months ago, we prepared the songs for today, many weeks ago. I can't help but think of the fact that we just sung about nations raging and wars rising, and here we are. And Father, maybe, maybe even in our own lives, nations and wars aren't rising, but, nation, but wars are rising in our lives, in our own situations and circumstances that we find ourselves perplexed, God, by your providence, asking how we are going to get from where you have us to where you would have us to be. And God, I pray that in the preaching and teaching of your word this morning, we would see you, and we would trust in you, and we'd be faithful because you are faithful. Bless this time together, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide, and that if there's one in here who does not know you, I pray that they would see that their journey of this life in its ultimate end will lead to times of quiet desperation. And that, God, those, of who, those who are not yours, that they don't know you, that, God, they don't have trust in your providence, that they don't understand your way, and, God, because of that, that oftentimes their future seems to be meaningless, without hope. Yet, God, I pray that in this day that they would be able to see this series and hear this story and be able to, Father, be drawn to you by your grace and mercy that they would come to place their faith in you before it's eternally too late. And God, for us, those of us who are your children, for those of us who have been called by you and saved, that God, we would be faithful in the everyday stuff of life. We would trust you in your providence, and we would live faithfully in it, no matter the situations and circumstances around us. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. So we start here with a Jewish ruse. 
And the reason I picked the word ruse is because I couldn't find another R word to match. So I went with ruse. Verses 12 through 15. The Bible says the following day, some Jewish people form an oath. An oath uh, bound themselves by a conspiracy. Do you not find it interesting the lengths to which evil will go to extinguish the gospel? I find it interesting the lengths at which evil will go in order to extinguish something that is good news. And here we are, we have a group of 40 men. And yet, by the way, before I go on, have you ever found it interesting as to why people are opposed to such good news? Have you ever found that interesting? I, often, I was talking to somebody this past week. And I said, you do know that the gospel of Christianity, the, the word, the story of Christianity, the news of Christianity is actually good news. And he said, well, you could have fooled me. And I said, yeah, it's good news about the fact that you're a Savior diver- deserving of hell and separation from God for all eternity. But God in His grace and mercy came down, died on a cross so that you would be saved, so that you would be redeemed and adopted as His child, and that then, therefore, you could live with Him for eternity. That's good news. Yeah, even the horns believe so. And I, and I sit here and I listen to this and I come to all of us this morning and I, and I ask yourself even this question, why did you reject such good news when you rejected it? Why do we reject the good news? What is it about the good news of the gospel of Jesus that would cause you or cause us as humans to reject it? I wonder if it's nothing more than merely than merely us wanting to do it our way. So here we have this Jewish ruse. A group of 40 men, which we see in verse 13, of high religious standing. That's what verse 13 says. 40, these 40 men who formed this plot, they, were, they must have been of high religious standing, decided that instead of abiding by their own rules and customs, they would form a conspiracy And why would they form a conspiracy? Because when truth isn't an option, conspiratorial solutions become the only one. And so they form this conspiracy, they form this plot, that now what they are going to do is they are going to kill this man. Now you've got to sit back and think about this. Because they can't deal with the truth of the gospel, they're going to kill this man. So I wonder, I wonder if these reli- religious zealots, I wonder if they're in their haste for conspiracy, uh, spent any time in the midst of this wondering what does the Bible say, right? Because, because isn't that what we ought to be? Shouldn't we be people of the Scriptures? But this ought not to make us, uh, not ought to make us concerned with this in one sense because we have been warned of this have we not proverbs chapter one proverbs chapter one i want to turn there real quick and i wonder if in all of this idea of uh, conspiracy did they ever think of proverbs chapter one verse 10 it says my son if sinners entice you do not consent if they say come with us let us lie and wait for blood let us ambush the innocent without cause Verse 15, my son, do not walk in the path with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. I wonder if any time in this, did any of these 40 men stop to consider that maybe the Bible, maybe the Bible has something to say in their, in their plot? Humans are desperately wicked, are they not? 
whitewashed tombs. And we live, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a world of conspiracy theories. As a matter of fact, oftentimes when I'm around men in particular, it is amazing to me how often we like to talk about said theories. We have conspiracy theories everywhere. It seems like any major event that comes is covered with some theory of a hoax or collusion. Where do conspiracy theories thrive? Conspiracy theories thrive in environments of mistrust. And here, these men don't even trust one another and definitely don't trust the Romans. So it is the breeding ground, not from some theoretical conspiracy, but an actual conspiracy. Conspiracy literally is the twisting of things together. It's how are we going to make all these things come together? How are we going to create these environments so that my will can be done? This is, by the way, one reason theories of such kind, kind find a footing inside the heart and mind of so many because of the real conspiracies that litter our landscape in the attempted cover-ups. And so, beloved, as a side note, I want, you to, I want to say this. I want you to be careful because we who are people of the Bible are to be people of tr- truth, not conspiracy. We are to be people of truth, not of, cons- as, of conspiracy. So when you begin to hear of conspiracies, you need to ask ask yourself the question, what is the truth? And that is what we are bound by. So the Jews formed this conspiracy bound by an oath. By the way, to be bound by an oath is the word that means to vow under penalty of excommunication. It is the word that we get the word anathema from. It is like saying, may I be cursed or eternally damned if I don't follow through with this. Now that's an oath. If I don't follow through what I'm going to say, I'm going to be cursed for eternity, eternity, or I'm going to be damned for eternity. Quite an oath. So the oath, by the way, is that these 40 men would neither eat nor drink until they had been ki- until they had killed Paul. An oath of damnation for an act of damnation. I want to remind you that murder is absolutely against God's law. It's one of the big ten, right? One of the big ten. So they took an oath of damnation for an act of damnation. Either way, these men are damned. And that's the way Satan works. Satan makes you think you are doing the right things, you do it in the wrong way, and the next thing you know, you're eternally damned no matter what you do. These 40 Jews come to the chief priests and the elders and they share their oath. That's what 14 and 15 says. They came to the chief priests and elders and they basically share what they have oathed themselves to. They have conspiratorially agreed to. Oh, how the plot thickens. How the plot thickens. But to me, I think this makes sense. I mean, who would you go to if you were going to create if you were going to be bound by an oath of eternal damnation? Right? Who are you going to go to if you were to say, hey, I'm going to bound myself to this oath and I'm going to make sure of I'm not going to be able to eat nor drink until I kill this man? Who else am I going to bind myself to than to those who want to kill this man? 
and to those who are responsible for interceding on behalf of those who may break an oath. I mean, that's, that's pretty wise, right? That's pretty wise. These, these, people are, these people are pretty smart. So if I break this oath, who am I going to go to? Those who can absolve me of the breaking of the oath. And those who hate them anyway. Especially, by the way, if I can get them to buy in. Hey, we're going to go kill this man. By the way, that's kind of what you're wanting to do anyway. I have this oath. I'm not going to eat or drink. So we, now we have 40 Jews and we have the cooperation of the Sanhedrin. But I don't believe it's the entire Sanhedrin. It says here, it's the chief priest and the elders. Now, if you remember what I told you last week, the Sadducees, at the, I mean, the, 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 the Sanhedrin at this time, which is the Jewish high court, is now ruled by the majority of the Sadducees and not the Pharisees. So these elders, these chief priests and these elders, they would be all of the Sadducean, uh, Sadducean sect. So, of course, the Sadducees, as the majority, would be able to convince the Pharisees to call a meeting for the purpose of the hearing of Paul. So what, what you've got to understand is these 40 men come to the chief priest and these elders who are the Sadducean, who would rule the majority, who by majority vote would now be able to call the entire Sanhedrin to this vote so that this plot, this conspiracy could take place. And verse 15 says, you and the council, showing that this was a select, uh, says that you and the council... Therefore, he says, now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down. So the you distinguishes them from the council, so it seems to be that I'm, what I'm telling you seems to be the truth. This is a select group and not the entire council. So here we have the very men who ought to be the people of God, driven by passion and not by truth. Leaders, by the way, who ought to fear God and who were the ones who said we are going to condemn this man, Paul, for breaking the law are now participating in the very ones who are going to break the law by murdering the man who broke the law. Do you get how wicked this is? It becomes so crooked. We can do this in our minds. We can do this in our own minds. We can validate our own sin and cover up our own sin in an effort to get what we want. And that's where the caution lies. Leaders who ought to fear God, but instead demonstrate the truth of what Paul declared in verse 3. Remember what Paul said to them in verse 3? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And now the hypocrisy is revealed. They are nothing but a bunch of whitewashed walls. Painted pretty on the outside with all their regalia of Pompeii. And on the inside, desperately wicked. Desperately blind. Pastor? By the way, these are men... These are men who are passionate about what they believe, yes? They're willing to die for it. They're willing to fast for it. They're willing to not, never, never eat again. These Sanhedrin are passionate about what they believe. And they are absolutely sincere. We will kill this man. But ladies and gentlemen, listen to me very carefully, especially in regards to our current culture. Passion and sincerity doesn't equate to morality 
Passion and sincerity doesn't equate to morality. Sincerity nor a majority vote is equivocal to truth. Paul would write to us and say this. I want to write, read this to you. It comes from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul writes this. We'll start in verse 3. And even after our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Blinded the minds. Here, what we discover, going back to Acts 23, here we discover the blind leading the blind in the blindness. One wonders if they truly believed they were doing God's will. I wonder if the Sanhedrin truly believe, these Sadducee and Sanhedrin truly believe they're doing God's will. I wonder if these 40 men truly believe I am doing God's will by removing this man, by murdering this man, because obviously this is what I am to do. You see, here they profess to know God, but their deeds deny Him. They are detestable and disobedient. And what they had failed to understand is that Paul's life hadn't been placed in their hands. But Paul's life had a greater purpose. Beloved, do not be dismayed when after receiving God's blessing, which he had just received in verse 11, yes? I'm taking you to Rome. Listen to me. Listen. I know something about this. Don't be dismayed when right after receiving God's blessing that you experience Satan's buffeting. Because, see, Satan's always reacting to God's goodness. You have to get this. Satan will always react to God's goodness. Have you ever found yourself in this position where right where you thought you were doing all of God's will, it seems like hell and everything else is coming against you? Why? Because Satan is not omniscient. Satan doesn't know all things. He's not in all places. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. So Satan has to react to what God is doing. So when God acts, Satan has to react. So don't be shocked when Satan, when God brings about a blessing that Satan's going to bring about a buffeting. Don't be shocked when things right happen that something bad happens. Don't be shocked by that. Be aware of it and be ready for it. What I want your attention turned to is this. That God in His protective providence, watch what I'm saying, God in His protective providence, He told Paul, I'm getting you to Rome. Don't worry about all this, I'm going to get you to Rome. I I have a job for you to do. That God in His protective providence doesn't rescue Paul through the miraculous but rescues him through the providential ordering of normal, natural events. Do you get it? So what I'm saying is, what you're doing is, sometimes what we do in life is we're looking at our life and we're going, wait, I can't see the end, how the ends justify the means. The means justify the ends. I don't know how this imprisonment is going to ultimately get me to where God wants me to preach in Rome. Hold on, yo, it's coming. 
But it doesn't mean necessarily. Necessarily, it doesn't mean that God is going to bring about a miracle to rescue from your prison. It may be that your imprisonment is the very means by which God is going to pay for you to get there. It may be that through your pain and suffering is the natural means that God is going to use in order to get you to do His providential will in order to proclaim His providential purposes. That's the way God is. That's the way it works. And you may be sitting here in your current situations and circumstances asking, well then, Pastor, how do you know? How do you know that God can use terrible events for His good purposes? How in any way can you come in here and look at my life and say, God can use terrible events for His good purposes? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, i got a beautiful, beautiful picture for you, and it's called the cross of Calvary. That's how I know. So the Jewish plot is set. They're wanting to kill this man. Forty men wanting to kill this man. We have the council or is going to agree to this, and we're gonna, they're going to follow through. And then in verses 16 through 22, we have the nephew's report. Watch providence work out. Watch how this works. And here we are introduced to the son of Paul's sister. Now this is interesting because little is known about Paul's family. But from this passage, we know two things. We know he has a sister. We know she had to have a family, right? And we know that he has a nephew. She had a son. That's what we, 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 we gathered that right there. All right? You're welcome. And I don't know how. Now, there may be an indication that maybe he was involved in some way in the Jewish court system. And the reason that is is because, remember, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Possibly could have been that possibly Paul had gotten him involved in some way, shape, or form. I don't know. We do know that Paul was involved, so the idea that he would bring his nephew into this idea is, is probably not a big wow, but it's a possibility. But somehow, some way, this young man hears of the ambush and comes to the barracks of Paul. Oh, let me stop real quick. I wonder if this young man, I wonder if this nephew, back when he was a young kid, and his, his uncle calls him and he goes, come on, boy, we're now going to go over and we're going to do something with the Sanhedrin. I wonder if he went, yay, what in the world? What am I doing? What if he was like a janitor in the, just a janitor in the old, in the old, uh, in the old temple? Man, I'm sweeping this temple day after day. Why am I here? I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. Man, this is a waste of time. A young man who thinks, I can't believe this, everything. My life is just a big jumble. And all the time, God in His providence is placing this young man exactly where he needs to be so that he could hear this message, so that Paul would be able to not be killed, so that Paul would be able to go. You see, there's a bigger story. There's a bigger, you're not the main character of the story. You're more like the nephew in the story. Uh-huh. You see, what we do is we, we, we emphasize our own, our own story. We emphasize our own narrative. And then we make our own narrative the narrative. And our narrative is not the narrative. There's a bigger story. God has a bigger plan. He is working out His redemptive purposes. And we, as His people, get to play part in that story. We are a part of it, but we're not the story, yo. I don't even know if I would be his nephew. I would be more like his, you know, the nephew's, the, the brother-in-law. I ain't even in the story, but I'm somewhere around it. 
right? Y'all with me? That was kind of a joke. Nobody laughed, but that's okay. Some of you may be the nephew. Some of you may be like a Paul where God's going to use mightily in those things. What I'm saying is this. This nephew never knew back then what he was preparing him for now, but in God's providential plan, look what happened. Oh, God's up to something. So somehow this young man hears of the ambush and he comes to the barracks to tell Paul. Now you were like, how in the world did this guy come to the barracks and tell Paul? I thought he was in jail. Yes, he's in jail. But in this day, prisoners, especially if they were Roman, and remember Paul is a Roman, they were given a great deal of freedom and visits from friends and family. They would be able to come in and go out as they pleased. So immediately this boy comes to Paul and informs him of the conspiracy. Oh my goodness. If we could count the ways God providentially provides for us against the schemes and plans of Satan. Hey, do you know that wreck you wasn't in this week that you were supposed to be in because God providentially prepared for you not to be in that wreck? No, you don't, do you? You don't even know. Isn't that great? The providential plan of God to get you here today. I wonder how many of you are here today by absolute providence. Right this moment, you're here by providence. Oh, I know. I know how God works these things out. We can always point to the things that we don't like, but we don't realize the millions of rest times we've been rescued. Sometimes God reveals these things to us, does he not? Sometimes you can look back, and for those of you whose almond tree has blossomed, which means you've got gray hair, Sometimes you can look back. For those of you who are younger, you struggle with this in your life because you're looking back on 21 years going, okay, where's God in my 21 years? Those of you who are my senior, who are, let's say, let's say 60 years or older, I, I would encourage you, young people, this is what I would do. For those of you who have no gray hairs, this is what I would do. I would tell you to go to them and ask them their story. Get them to tell you their story. To look back on their, 19, their teens, their 20s, their 30s and say, how has God in His providence brought you to this place and listen to God's providence work out? It's unbelievable. Senior adults, amen? It's unbelievable. But here this young man is working this thing out and God is providentially providing for him. And surely for all of us, we may not have nephews running to inform us of our impending death, but if we were to reflect on the corridors of time in our own life, we can see how God in His providence has defended us. The assurance for us is there, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the plan of God. Let me say it again. There is no wisdom... No earthly wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the plan of God. How do I know that? Well, I have a Bible that tells me that. But the verse I want to share with you is from Proverbs 21.30. Y'all don't think I come up with this stuff on my own, do you? Listen to Proverbs 21.30. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. There you go. Simple. Right? Augustine would write, Augustine would write, trust the past, I like this, trust the past to the mercy of God, trust the present to the love of God, and trust your future to the providence of God. Trust the past to the mercy of God, the present to the love of God, and the future to the providence of God. 
So Paul calls the centurion to him and directs him to take his nephew to the commander. All right, now, now here's what's, uh, there's some things that you can see here working out. Paul didn't have the authority to tell this guy to take him, so there's a relationship here that must be built. There's something happening here. But I want you to pay attention to something. Paul, Paul doesn't have some martyr complex. Paul is not walking around, around looking for ways to die. But Paul isn't afraid of death either. You see, to live is Christ for Paul and to die is gain for Paul. You see, Paul is just as assured of his arrival at Rome by God himself. So as he strives to live for Christ, he is going to use the information he has to protect the life he has. That just makes common horse sense. And we, in our modern day biblical Christianity, quote unquote, what we have done is we have so spiritualized everything that we have made following Christ almost this, this ephemeral type of, of uh, spiritual um, uh, weird thing. No, listen, listen to me, beloved. If, if you hear today that a man is going to come kill you tomorrow and you're going to pray for God to give you a miracle for that man to not come kill you tomorrow, you just missed your miracle by him telling you the man's coming to kill you tomorrow. Run! Don't stand there and get shot, stupid. Do something <laughs> for heaven's sake. For your own sake, right? Y'all have all heard the story? The man, there's a flood, right? Man sitting there. Y'all have heard the story. Everybody's shaking their head. I'm not going to share it again. Don't miss your helicopter and get to heaven. And God says, I sent you a helicopter, stupid. Jeez. We make this thing too complicated. So he strives to live for Christ. He uses the information he has to protect his life. And I want you to get this because this is the, this is the rhythm of, of, of true biblical theology. It's not that Paul is unaware of miracles. The apostle Paul is not sitting there going, oh, I wonder if God can do something miraculous. I think Paul, if you've journeyed with me through the last three missionaries, I think Paul is fully aware that he can free him from this prison by a mere angel, right? I think, I think Paul has something to do. I think the Paul and Silas story might be popping up here a little bit in his mind. I think Paul knows God can do the miraculous. But you notice that Paul doesn't entertain the miraculous, much less expect the miraculous. It's not like Paul is sitting here going, well, you remember, he's freed me from the, the prison in, in, with, Paul, with Silas. I remember when I was there, oh, he's going to free me again. Health, wealth, and prosperity. I was freed then. I'm going to be freed now. Have you, haven't you read it, brothers and sisters? God freed him from Paul and Silas from the prison, and now he's going to free you from your prison. No. If Paul frees you from, if God frees you from the prison, let me tell you what, you glorify God for freeing you from the prison, but you also understand he may have very much purposes in your prison. Mm. See, this is stuff that you don't hear on, on, on CBN, right? These guys are not preaching about, oh, Paul went through suffering and pain. You know, they like to preach this hot health, wealth, and prosperity nonsense, and then the next thing you know, they forget to tell you that 10 out of the 11 martyrs that lived, well, 10, 11 out of the 12 died a brutal death. One died by himself. The other 10 died brutal deaths. 
and only one survived, and he was brutally, uh, brutally uh, treated. They don't tell you that, do they? The answer is no, they don't. So I'm trying to get us biblically informed. I'm trying to get us off of this idea that we, we sit around and wait for something miraculous to happen. No, Paul saw the normal, everyday means of God's grace as the solution provided to extend his life for God's purposes. This is how we are to live. We don't fear danger. We don't fear death. But it, don't run in it to it either. We call on God to help and accept whatever help He can provide. I often pray for people when they're sick. And oftentimes when I'm praying for this, I pray for the miraculous and I pray for medicine. You hear me? I pray for the miraculous and I pray for medicine. Why? Because I believe that God's miraculous means of grace, He can heal you at any time He wants. He can take a cancer away from you. He can take anything He wants away from you. But I also believe in God's normative means of grace as He has given us medicine and doctors and people who can actually help us. And I believe He can use that too. Praise be to God. It would be ignorant. It is. It wouldn't be. It is. It's ignorant and stupid. For people not to accept God's normal means of grace in order to sit there and expect His miraculous means of grace. No, we can accept both. It's foolish, guys. It's foolish to do that. So when He sends a nephew warning us of a death, we accept it as, hey, thank you, Jesus. The Syrian takes the boy to the commander and he inquires of him privately. Now, I want you to get this. This hardened military Roman commander is going to take this boy's hand, the Bible says. He's going to step aside and he's going to ask, what is it you have to report to me? If anything, it does demonstrate at the very least the wisdom of this Roman leader. To not assume he knew everything and that he was willing out of courtesy to listen to what this young boy had to say. He was willing to sit back and just stop and listen to this young boy. Now, I might be pushing this a little bit here, but we live in a day of reverberating boxes. Do you know what I mean by that? We sequester ourselves in think tanks and we listen to polls and we're unwilling to listen to advice because of pride. And I think we need to be careful. We need to sit down and listen to one another. It also demonstrates the relationship it seems Paul and this commander has built. Now, I'm not saying they're besties, right? Uh, They might have been Facebook friends, but they're really not friends. I'm not saying they're best friends, but for a prisoner to be given the time of day does demonstrate that Paul is seen as someone at the very least to be heard. And what does the boy tell this man? He, He repeats verses 20 through 21, that what he knows, revealing to us that this boy in some way understood the entirety of the plot And Lysias responds by instructing this boy to tell no one. Don't tell anyone. Why? Because if this Roman soldier knows one thing, it knows how how the gossip of this thing works. You tell someone that you told him, and the next thing you know, these people are going to find out, and then they're going to change their plans. So then we have the commander's response, verses 23 through 35. The Bible says Lysias immediately sends Paul to Caesarea. This is Caesarea by the sea, over near the Mediterranean. It is the residence of the governor. It's the primary residence of the governor, and it's the capital of the government for Rome in this area. 
Now, this transfer was most likely imminent anyway. He was most likely going to take him there anyway, so I can imagine it was already on his mind. But now the threat only makes it all the more important. And I need you to remember, this man's role, Lysias' role, is to maintain peace and order. So any idea of a plot would escalate his response, and it escalates his responsibility. And all the details here show the seriousness that Lysias has. Notice he calls two centurions, and he told them to take their soldiers. A centurion was over a hundred soldiers. Centurion means 100. He was over a hundred. So get this, he has 200 soldiers at the third hour of the night, which is 9 p.m. He's going to tell 200 soldiers at 9 p.m. to travel to Caesarea, and oh, and by the way, take some of these guys with you, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Just a little, just a few people. Just a few. 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 770 horsemen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what I call protection. How did God protect Paul to get him to Caesarea, where he actually get him to Rome? Uh, 200 soldiers. 200 spearmen and 70 horses. Sounds like protection. That's 470 soldiers. And next, he's going to provide Paul a ride, verse 24. So he not only is going to provide him protection, but he's also going to provide him a ride. They were to mount Paul and take him to Felix the governor. By the way, this entire record speaks of urgency. It speaks of emergency. And then Lysias uh, provides an official letter to Felix which was required, by the way, when you're transferring a soldier, I mean a prisoner, you had to provide this letter. This letter informs the governor of the circumstances and the charges. And the letter here in the Bible is recorded for us. It tells us the sender, Lysias, the recipient, Felix, and a greeting. And then Lysias tells of the circumstances regarding the prisoner that accompanied the letter. Verse 27, which we are all aware of because we've all studied this together. Paul was arrested by the Jews, he was about to be killed, and then was rescued by Lysias, who says it was because he learned that he was a Roman, failing to mention, by the way, it was because of the disturbance, right? What's interesting in this letter is what Lysias leaves out. He didn't tell him anything about the disturbance. Why? Because Lysias would have been responsible to the governor for the disturbance, so he kind of leaves that out. There really wasn't a disturbance. I'm not going to talk about the disturbance. That makes me look bad, right? True politics here. And, oh, he didn't mention that he was going to scourge him. You notice that's, mi- that's missing from the letter. Y'all remember, he was actually going to scourge Paul. But then Centurion came to him and says, hey, Paul's a Roman. You can't scourge him. He didn't mention any of that. Kind of left all that out, too. I find that funny. Um, but nevertheless, he was a Roman. So he learns of the charges, which was questioned. Uh, he, and he's going to tell the charges. But there was no charge against him deserving of death or imprisonment. Did you notice that's what, that's what the commander said? There is no charges against this man deserving of death or imprisonment. And then he learned of the plot to kill him, so he sent him to Felix and informed those who were prosecuting him to bring charges against him there. So this letter is written, and now the soldiers are going to proceed with their orders. And so we discover this overnight run to Antipatris. Which, by the way, this was a military outpost. It was about halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. It was a natural stopping point. It was a natural stopping place for a two-day journey. And it seems that the foot soldiers stop here and they're going to return to Jerusalem while the cavalry continues on with Paul. And it makes sense if you think about it. 
Sending 200 soldiers definitely intensifies any idea of someone attacking, but having 200 soldiers gone for a long time would definitely weaken what? Weaken the old home front back in Jerusalem where all hell's breaking loose. So to send them away all the way to Caesarea would be a little bit more than a week without them, and that could make things in Jerusalem a little bit difficult. So get this, they go about halfway, the foot soldiers return, and then the cavalry continues with Paul. And that's what we have here. So the letter arrives, and we finally, and in conclusion, we see the governor's reception, verses 33 through 35. They arrive in Caesarea, they deliver the letter, and the prisoner to Felix. He was the governor, or the procurator, if you will, at the time. He was there from A.D. 52 to A.D. 59, and he will play a major role in the next few chapters. We're going to get to know Felix pretty well. Felix owed position to his brother Pelias, his brother Pelias, who would influence the Roman governor by the name of Claudius. They were both slaves and set free by the imperial family. The office was granted to Felix, was something unheard of for a former slave, and was secured most likely through his brother's influence. It was considered disdain in some Roman circles. They didn't, nobody liked Felix because he was a slave who had been given power. Tacitus would write, he says this, this is, by the way, Tacitus is a Roman writer. He would say that Felix, quote, wielded royal power with the instincts of a slave, unquote. So he wasn't liked. Felix's administration was marked by the rising tide of Jewish nationalism. Many instructions, uh, insurrections would come about and they would be brutally suppressed by him. He was arbitrary in his dispensation of justice and he totally lacked any sympathy for the Jews. He was a very ambitious man, and because of his ambition and his pretentious nature, he, was nowhere, he nowhere demonstrated more clearly than in his marriage. He was very pretentious. He was very ambitious. He had three wives. All of them were princesses. The first was the granddaughter of two people who most of you have heard about by the name of Antony and Cleopatra. The third, his third wife was Drusilla. Drusilla was the daughter of Agrippa I. You might ask how I know that. You can go look at 2424. We're going to figure that out later. And Felix's administration would be finally removed from office for his total mismanagement of a dispute between the Jews and the Gentiles. And we will see this beginning in also chapter 24 as we continue. But I want you to notice here that Luke says nothing of all this because the narrative is little about Felix no matter how big Felix thought he was. And instead, the narrative really is about this little prisoner. I bet Felix thought he was the man. Little did he know. Felix comes to Paul and he asks, what providence are you from? What province, excuse me, are you from? It is determined, what Felix is doing, he is determining whether he had the jurisdiction over Paul. And after determining the place to hear the case, he now knew that Felix was going to be responsible. So Felix would place Paul in what's called the Praetorium. It's a former palace that was built by Herod the Great, and he awaits for the accusers of Paul to arrive. And beloved, guess where Paul would stay for the next two years of his life? Right here. two-year stay in Caesarea and Paul would never see freedom again. 
So Paul's in prison. We're at Caesarea by the sea now. You can start unpacking. We're going to be here for two years. I wonder, have you ever felt like your life is out of control and everything is out of your hands? Beloved, listen to me. Trusting the providence of God isn't some metaphorical, hypothetical dream of weak people. It is the confident truth that we trust in God's faithfulness through it all. You see, history is the story of God supernaturally working through what appears to be natural in order to accomplish His purposes and will through simple, ordinary means and simple, ordinary people. This is why we in the church can afford to be daring. Because we know our Savior is dependable and He works out His perfect plan. And we know in the very depths of God's divine providence through which God's plan is carried out, we also have God's means to accomplish those ends. God is the first cause and the first cause uses secondary causes. So as life is stretched out before us this week, we are to be obedient to His cause, knowing that He is faithful to it as well. Lord, from sorrows deep I call, when my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall, hear my desperation. For so long I've pled and prayed, God, come to my rescue. And even so the thorn remains, still my heart will praise you. Can you? Are you? Will you? Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers. On my faith these billows roll, God be now my shelter. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in him who saves you. When the fires have all grown cold, cause this heart to praise you. And though the nations rage, Though kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the Ancient of Days. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, He is here with me, I am not alone. Oh, his love is sure, and he knows my name, for my God is the Ancient of Days. All of time's in his hands. Listen, for his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name, for my God is the Ancient of Days. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. And then my joy complete standing face to face in the presence of the ancient of days. You see, beloved, there's a statement that hit me about two months ago as I was running one morning. And you, we have a choice to make in this week. You have a choice to make in this day, but let's just, let's just, let's just, 
let's, let's, let's stretch it out until we see each other once again as a community of faith. You will either be a wondering generality or you will be a meaningful specific. You are either going to be a wondering generality or you are going to be a meaningful specific. You're either going to see your life as kind of wandering, meandering, kind of in this, in this cosmos or this universe of, of time plus matter plus chance, and you're just going to see this as some general thing that there is no purpose, there's no meaning, and you're just going to be this wandering generality. And that's the way you treat life. It's just this wandering generality. You have no plan for tomorrow. You have no plan for this afternoon. It's just a wandering generality. And you just wander through life as this general reality. And just, and just life comes by. And the next thing you know it, you're 70 years old, looking at yourself in the mirror, going, what in the world happened? Or you're going to pick up your life and you're going to be a meaningful specific, knowing that God has specifically chosen you to save you and called you to be his own. And you're going to live on purpose. And you're going to live in God's providence. Knowing that no matter what He has for you this day, whether it be imprisonment or freedom, whether it be pain or pleasure, whether it be riches or poverty, that He will be glorified and my joy will be found in Him and Him alone. So I don't know where you are, but I know where I want you to be. Everybody stand to your feet. Let us prepare our hearts now for the Lord's table. If you're joining with us for the first time, I want you to know that every week we participate in the Lord's Supper because after we hear this message, we want to be reminded of his body and his blood, and we believe this to be the biblical uh, demonstration for us that as we gather, when we gather, that we would participate in the Lord's Supper together. But the Lord's Supper is meant for those who call him Lord. So if you are an unbeliever in here this morning, we, we want you to come, we want you to participate, but we would ask you to refrain from participating in the Lord's Supper, not because we don't want you to. God knows we want you to participate, but because you have chosen to reject Jesus, you, you have rejected God, and because of that rejecting, rejection, we would ask for you not to participate. But we would ask of this, that you would come by faith to know him and to trust in him and to believe in him, and that you would follow through in baptism, and that you would be baptized, confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart Christ was raised from the dead, and so that in the baptism that you would identify as the church now, as the visible church here on earth, that we would live for our king and demonstrate his kingdom. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, we would call you to be baptized. We would call you to faith, obviously, and to follow through in baptism as the demonstration of that faith. And if you are here and you are a believer in Christ, regardless of your church membership, we would ask for you to come and to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. We leave outside of our chairs. We come, we participate, we grab the elements, we go back to our seats, and we participate in, our, in the Lord's Supper together. So before we do that, let us go before our great God and King so that we do not come to this table in an unworthy manner, as Paul said. The best way we know how to do that right now in this moment is to bow our heads before our God, confessing our sin once again, trusting in him, confessing our good God and King so that we prepare our hearts to come and to participate. So church, faith family, will we bow our heads now and go before our great God and King in private prayer? Let us pray.